Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stewart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Octopussy, starring Roger Moore, Maude Adams, Louis Jordan, and directed by John Glenn. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stewart in L.A., or Octopussy, apparently. <laughs> this is Arnie, and I'm at an all-time high. Why are you holding out? Puff, puff, pass. <laughs> I'm bogarting this. I'm staying high. I'm going to be high on Octopussy tonight. Nice. Welcome back to Now Playing, and we are here for the 13th official James Bond movie. Lucky 13 or bad luck? We're going to find out. Roger Moore comes back for his sixth appearance. He ties Sean Connery for the most appearances as James Bond with this movie. Why did this man come back? I have enjoyed what Moore has brought to the part. I understand that it is not exactly what I've been asking for and that his movies have not ranked as high as some of the earlier ones. But truly, For Your Eyes Only was a peak, and I just do not understand why he would want to come back after that film. He doesn't look like he feels it anymore. The answer to that is very simple. It's never say never again. He was not going to come back. He was going to retire with For Your Eyes Only, and they actually had a lot of people in mind. They actually screen-tested James Brolin. What? Yeah, it's true. They actually released that. He was going to be an American James Bond. They were debating about the accent, the whole thing. They also looked at Michael Billington, who we actually made a comment about during The Spy Who Loved Me. He was the guy in bed with Triple X at the beginning of the movie. They thought about him as well. Timothy Dalton's name, of course, came up. But Roger Moore signed on. Because when Never Say Never Again was announced, they figured it'd be better to go with the known quantity instead of having to have Sean Connery up against a newbie in the role. They were that worried about Never Say Never Again? This was like a one-on-one fight here? Like, winner take all? Yes, this movie came out in the summer, and Never Say Never Again came out in the fall, I think October. I believe they're supposed to go head-to-head, like two weeks apart, and they finally moved Never Say Never Again to the fall. And it was a big deal, because they've been trying to fight this very thing for years in the courts against Kevin McClory, but we'll get a little more into that in our next podcast. Well, I have to say, though, I'm happy to see him back. The last one was a market improvement over the previous ones, and... I think they do a much better job of hiding his age in this one than they did in the last one. He just doesn't come across quite 
as AARP ready. Uh, okay, if you say so. I don't think he's bad. And don't get me wrong, I am not knocking Roger Moore for being older. We know that he's old. He started old, and he's kept his personality and his youthful vigor. I'm just saying, just go out on a high. That was as good as it was going to be. What you're saying makes sense, Brock. It makes sense to me that he was asked back because they felt like if it was going to be James Bond versus bizarro James Bond, they didn't want to have a newbie go against Connery. They wanted to have their best guy, their most known quantity to go against him. But I just feel like it was time to mix it up. It was a new decade. You know, we had Connery in the 60s, more in the 70s. Why not usher in the 80s with a fresh face? It just didn't seem like it was a good idea for anyone, but I guess I understand the rationale. The person who I actually feel really bad for is Moneypenny, because it feels like she has that Robin Williams Jack disease. We've been just living with her for 14 weeks, and my god, she's just looking so bad. Oh, leave Money Penny alone. I love Money Penny. I don't care how old and haggard she looks, and she does look old and haggard here. But I don't want anything to do with this Penelope Smallbone. This is crap. I want Money Penny in that chair until she can't do it anymore. Yeah, we know Smallbone isn't going to work for Bond. Right, and Money Penny is also the actress very brave to stand next to another woman, clearly who's supposed to be her replacement, or at least so you think. Cool piece of trivia, Penelope Smallbone is actually the name of an actress who auditioned for a role earlier in the Bond series, and they liked the name so much they put it as a character name in this movie. But they didn't put her in the role, so f*** you, Smallbone. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are the same people that are calling the big woman Octopussy, so I guess they are not above going there. Yes. Well, let's talk about this title, because I mentioned how For Your Eyes Only was my first conscious awareness of Bond. Well, Octopussy came right around the time when I started sneaking Playboys out of my friend's father's rooms and taking them home. I thought this was a porno. I honestly thought, oh my god, Octopussy must be a porno. Hmm. I knew it was James Bond, but I also thought at that time if I could ever stay home from school and watch a soap opera, I'd see porn. I was, I was obsessed with porn at that age. You were nine years old? Eight, yeah. Now mm-hmm. playing Confessions. <laughs> Well, I didn't get it. I had no idea when this came out. I was just excited. James Bond was back, and I did go see it in theaters, and I think I even bought a comic. I mean, this one felt more heavily marketed, or maybe I was just more aware of the marketing of this one, but this was a big deal when it came out. I was very excited. I thought that it had to do with a monster, honestly. I thought it was some kind of feline from the Black Lagoon kind of thing. I had no idea what an octopusy was. I certainly didn't have a X-rated association with it. Me neither, and this is the Bond film I have seen the most. Just because this is when I was getting into James Bond as a whole around this time when it was on cable like 84, 85, I was was watching this movie in pieces and parts whenever I could. This is a bit of nostalgia James Bond for me. And so today I'm going to do my best to judge it as a movie of what we're seeing on the screen. Here's the thing is, as we get to these more recent movies, I'm going to remember more and more. And this one I had a strong memory of that turned out not to be entirely right, but some female fighting acrobats outside a palace with James Bond and a woman inside the palace. I knew we were going to go someplace pretty damn silly. So coming in, all I knew were acrobat women. Well, we get so much more than that, Arnie, and I don't even think that's the silliest thing. Why don't you tell him? Bond is hired to investigate the death of Agent 009, killed while clowning around with a fake Fabergé egg. (laughs) 
Bond follows the real egg to India, where he meets exiled Prince Kamal Khan, cheating in backgammon. Showing he has the real egg, Bond becomes Khan's target, and he's taken captive and traces the egg to a palace run by Octopussy, the head of the Octopus Cult. (laughs) Hey, now, don't laugh, it's a smuggling operation, but also a legitimate business for such ventures as circuses. Are you okay? Don't be fine, keep going. <laughs> Octopussy had partnered with Khan to smuggle jewels such as the egg, but Khan was double-crossing her, partnering with the warmongering Russian general Orlov, and instead of smuggling jewels, Octopussy was unknowingly smuggling a nuclear warhead into a U.S. Air Force base in West Germany, where Octopussy's circus was performing. Where'd I put my jewels? Oh shit, it's a nuke! <laughs> What am I going to do with that? Orlov is killed trying to cross the German border with the train that holds the bomb, but the bomb makes it past and into the circus act. <laughs> Bond narrowly stops the bomb from exploding, and enraged, Octopussy and her circus of crime attack Khan's palace, aided by Bond and Q who arrive via air balloon. Khan tries to fly off, but Bond clings to the outside of the plane, causing it to crash, and Bond and Octopussy narrowly escape the plane's explosion. With Khan and Orlov dead, M and Gogol work on diplomatically returning the stolen jewels to Russia, while Bond enjoys some octopussy. <laughs> oh, James. First and foremost, before we get into anything, I just gotta say, Fabergé eggs? Now, you want to talk about a memory. I got Fabergé confused with the Franklin Mint. I'll be honest to God. At the time in the early 80s, there was a lot of ads on TV for buy this now, buy this collector's plate. I thought that was Fabergé. My mom has replicas of Fabergé eggs. I mean, all of this stuff here, I thought that this plot was about acquiring junk. Like, I can't understand why we have a plot surrounded around Fabergé eggs. Where did this come from? The basics of that part of the story is from a short story called The Property of a Lady. Actually, an Ian Fleming short story, James Bond. But it's a clock, not the egg. It's Fabergé. And the idea, the whole bidding thing, when he overbids on the stuff to get the other guy to see how much he wants, it's all in the short story. And you can hear that short story review over at booksandnachos.com as part of our James Bond book series over there. Mm. That's where that comes from. You know, I'm hearing you guys laugh about the plot. And yes, it's kind of silly. You have circuses and things like that. But maybe I'm just too used to the plot. But I don't find it as silly as Arnie made it sound. And as you laughing at it, it's out as well. <laughs> I want to state, unlike certain previous plot summaries, I tried to tell this one straight. I did not expect any laughter. <laughs> it's just such a silly freaking concept. It's not how silly I made it sound. It's what it is. I totally agree. When I'm watching this movie, I was not heckling at it as this absurd. It really is when you boil it down and you realize, wow, it really is about chasing around some Fabergé eggs and nukes. I mean, it sounds crazy the way that you constructed that plot summary, Arnie. But like I said, I think I just got tickled back to the memory of my mom buying all these Franklin Min plates and all these odd collectors that are probably still sitting in her house. They want these Fabergé eggs. Bond, come over to my place. I got about 30 you can have. <laughs> and then there was the time your mom opened one up and it turned out to be a new. <laughs> I do agree at some point, though, that the plot gets a little fuzzy as what Kamal Khan is going to gain from putting the bomb in there with Orlov. I understand why Orlov is doing it. I understand what Octopussy is doing. I understand why Khan is double-crossing people. But why is Khan in on the nuke part? What does he have to gain by that? 
I don't think the movie's entirely clear on that. Just like the last movie, this script is constructed to have a part one that feels like one movie and a part two that feels like something entirely different. And I'm just getting used to this being the formula. I mean, I think this is the way it goes. Certainly, Moonraker was that way, too. The stuff in space did not feel like the stuff prior to that. There is this schism that happens somewhere in the middle of this. You flip the record, and you get a whole new soundtrack for Bond. I mean, this Easter egg hunt has nothing to do with when we get to the Russians and the Newts. Two different things that kind of tenuously connect, but for me, don't feel like one storyline. I'm going to disagree with you on this one. I see what you're saying, and all of these James Bond plots do evolve. And in this case, Bond is just sent to investigate this dead agent. I'm not quite sure what the dead agent was investigating since Octopussy's like, well, I just smuggle over non-British borders, so I'm outside of your jurisdiction. So I don't know why 009 was so concerned with it all. I don't think he knew about the Russians' involvement. But what really ties this all together for me is the opening scene in Russia where you see General Gogol, who's been with us time and time and time again, which I never knew until doing this retrospective series, and this new Russian general who we've not seen before, Orlov. And this early scene really ties the whole film together and gives it a cohesion, because I will admit, about 45 minutes to an hour in with this whole egg thing, I'm like, when the hell do we get back to the Russians? When do the Russians play in? And then it all ties together. I actually think this is a well-woven story, better than we've seen in several films, as far as plotting. I agree with you. I think it weaves together perfectly. I'm just confused on what Khan gains at the end. Can you explain that? I took it as he was hired to do this, and he's stealing a lot of jewels. He's ending his partnership and moving on. He's kind of been the secondary guy, and he's going to go off and be his own man and no longer work for Octopussy. He's the agent for hire, like we've seen in so many other Bond movies, where the Russians pick some evil intermediate to do their dirty work. Fair enough. Question for you right off the bat. This thing's called Octopussy. The poster's got a woman with eight arms wrapping around Roger Moore. I'm thinking this might be a first here. For a long time in this movie, I thought Octopussy was the big bad guy. I thought this was our first female supervillain. I did too, honestly. And that was also my memory going in. I knew there was a woman named Octopussy who was powerful. I thought she would be our supervillain. And it is kind of leading to that because Khan does work for her. Right, and she's not exactly innocent. She is a smuggler. Yeah, I was really hoping for a game changer here. I thought that might be the one way in which this story was really going to play differently was that we've always talked about the women being secondary. Yeah, they're bad girls and hench women, but at the end of the day, there is a supervillain that is male and there is the woman that's won as a prize by Bond at the end. I didn't think they were going to go that way, but maybe I should have because, like I said, for me, this setup, all of this movie, I almost feel like this is the same movie that we got last time. I mean, obviously the story is different, but in beats, when things happen, when we're meeting characters, when things come together. I just feel structurally, this is the same story. This is the same thing coming down the assembly line. And hey, I'm okay with that, because I recommended For Your Eyes Only, so I'm down with it. But I was hoping to have more novelty here than we end up getting. When you break it down to just a story level, I see what you're saying, Stuart. But from the very opening pre-credit scene, I realize we are in a totally different movie, because I complained last podcast that Bond didn't have enough gadgets, and there wasn't enough to 
do. Well, here in the very opening, we see Bond going up against a fat Fidel Castro with a fold-out airplane. And I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable that we're back in the Bond zone I like. He literally flies out of a horse's ass. <laughs> yes. And he's cracking more jokes like Roger Moore did before. So last time he had not as many jokes, but he had them sparingly. Here in the opening scene, we're getting lots of jokey stuff, as well as a fun-as-hell airplane sequence. Love that. The fact that movie technology has come so far to give us these great aerial stunts that really are, in a small way, kind of what Tony Scott will be doing in a couple of years with Top Gun. It's that level of excitement of aerial stunts. But let's just face it, we're in the 80s, we're in a time I know, and we're with a villain I know, General Orlov. I looked at him and I went, oh my god, it's Victor from Beverly Hills Cop! Who we also know from Rambo 2, the quintessential 80s bad guy. Sure. Well, the Russians were the bad guys. Certainly, yes. This is the first time that I really felt like we were 80s, 80s. Yes, technically, For Your Eyes Only, 1981 was an 80s movie, but that didn't have the same sheen as this movie does. This movie's politics, its accoutrements, everything about it is saying 80s, 80s, 80s. You're right. I agree with you guys both. I think the action scene is certainly on a different level. I think the special effects there, you can hardly tell how they did some of that stuff. Obviously, you can tell the insert shots, but Roger Moore is actually in the plane when they're flying through the hangar. Although, I did feel another movie being ripped off here when the airplane goes through that hangar, turns on its side. I'm like, yeah, they just stole that from Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Straight out of Empire. It was cool, though. And speaking of Empire, did you see the two uh, Star Wars actors later in the movie? Did you pick them up? Besides Jeremy Bullock in the QC? No. Rican is the general at the end of the movie at the circus. And Admiral Mahdi, Richard La Perimeter, is the guy who is his lieutenant. The guy who makes that ge- general thinks this is a blast. But love how that scene ends. That fill her up, please, is a perfect line, a perfect button. It works completely. I laugh every time I watch this. It's, again, kind of like we were saying last time about I like a drive through the country. It's a little bit more one-linery, but I'm not groaning the way I have been in some of those others, like his dentist uses a rivet gun. You guys are right. This is good. As much fun as I had the last one or Live and Let Die, this is as good as anything Moore has done on cinema. I really do like the opening. If only I felt the same way when we get into the credit sequence and we get the Bond song. I'm going to say I could not remember the Bond song from this because I'm like, I just can't hum a bar of Octopussy. How's the chorus go? They don't go there. I think wisely they realized they could not write a song where the title is the lyric that is sung. Right. But yet they pulled it off for Thunderball. I'm sure somebody, ACDC, could write a song called Octopussy. They went a complete 180 from ACDC with Rita Coolidge, though. <laughs> Can I just say, this song sounds like bad sex. Okay? Did Rita just down like a bottle of sleeping pills before she got in the booth? Because... Come on, girl, you are about to f*** James Bond. Try to be a little excited here. I know it's Roger Moore. I know he's like 80 years old and Diagra hasn't been invented yet. But still, where is the fire in this song? Where's the brassiness? This is the lamest, wannest theme song we've had. This chick needs to drink a Red Bull. She needs to do some Kegels. She needs to try this again. She needs to get in the mood because this is just a limp-ass song. You say it's like bad sex. I think sex, even when it's bad, is pretty good, and that's how I feel about this song. No way! You are not going to defend All Time High. No way you're going to dog Goldfinger and say this gets a pass. 
I don't got a dog Goldfinger and say this gets a pass. It's not top five material, but it's certainly top ten. It's not an all-time high, but it's up there. It's an all-time low. No. It will get worse, and quickly. We're about to get worse, but this one, it even is worse than Thunderball for me. This is the lamest theme by far. I just kind of like it, not as a Bond theme, but again, I revealed last time, much to a little bit of embarrassment after the fact that I have a soft spot in my heart for soft rock, and this fits right in there. I'm listening to the opening credits. I'm like, oh, it's that other song I got on that Time Life collection. I didn't know that was from Bond. (laughs) I think of Supermarket Muzak when I hear this song, because I've heard this song in supermarkets. I think of... Dentist offices? Yeah, middle of the road James Bond song, Light FM. This is not the worst. This is not the best. I like the melody very, very much. I just don't understand why... It's called All Time High, and it has nothing to do with the movie at all. It's just the theme of the movie. It doesn't even have a title in it, yada, yada, yada. That kind of whole critique again. But as a song itself on its own, it's right there in the middle of the road for me. It's almost forgettable. Almost. Let's keep move on. <laughs> oh, I would never forget this song, but I do agree. I don't get why it's the theme to this one. If you're not going to make a song called Octopussy, it's time for Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang to be the title song. It's time to finally give it its due and not necessarily this, which literally feels like they could have just been channel flipping through the AM stations and gone, that's our song. Well, actually, I'm grateful that someone posted a documentary about the Bond themes in our forums. And I watched why they did go with Rita Coolidge. And it was because Broccoli's daughter actually did listen to this and thought, hey, let's go with her. I mean, this was the daughter's influence here. The daughter has some pretty darn good instincts. And we'll see that as she continues to be the producer on the series. But I think this one might have been a a little bit of a reach. Again, it's not even about James Bond. It's just a song. But coming out of the song, I have to say, I was really hyped up by that opening. And then we get a clown. And I'm a little confused why there's a clown with a balloon being chased by Knivesman. <laughs> the balloon is what gets you. I remember the clown. I re- That was one of the distinctive things I remember about Octopussy. And maybe it's just, you know, at that point, clowns. I had seen poltergeists. I don't like them. But yes, why run away with a balloon? That one will only slow you down. I don't get it. <laughs> it's quite a curious scene when he's being chased by the twin knife throwers and breaks into the ambassador of West Germany's bedroom with a fake Fabergé egg. And the balloon makes it. The agent doesn't, but the balloon does not pop. Technically speaking, there's two balloons, because one balloon pops in the forest and gives his location away to the knife throwers. And the second balloon is still on his wrist when he crashes through the window. And I love the visual of the clown laying there, but his balloon is floating high. I thought this whole scene was fun watching a clown, a desperate clown, run away from these two guys. I think the whole thing is filmed well. I really felt desperation in that clown. (laughs) Well, yes, anytime you have to put on pancake makeup, that is desperate. (laughs) When he falls backwards into the water, there's a big old clown flop. I think it plays really fun. My first time I laughed in the scene was when they go to the diplomat's house, and her house is clearly labeled that it's her house. Wouldn't you want to keep that quiet, that she lives there? I do wish that they'd gone a little bit more real, like maybe he'd have trouble running in those oversized shoes, something like that. But I'm just very concerned and honestly worried. I'm seeing a clown run from twins with knives and I'm thinking, 
are we going to head back to Moonraker territory? Because it kind of feels we might be heading back to Moonraker territory. But what I like is the tone is serious, even if the clown is not. And that's right. Yes. Even though they might be doing a bit that would be played really, really broad in Moonraker, even though it's an absurd scene, I don't feel like the scene plays as ridiculous. I am intrigued. It's a grabber. I want to know, what is this story? And when we find out that it's 009 and then he died to do this, well, yeah, I want to know. Yeah, I agree. I think it plays great, and I think it really does add a curiosity factor of why is a clown running. I think it plays extraordinarily well. And he jumps a wall. I got to say, starting in Berlin and he jumped a wall, I'm like, is this a defector? I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that this was a British agent coming home. When you put something in a divided city like Berlin, I thought for sure that he was a communist clown trying to make it to the free world. It was confusing, but I'm asking questions, and that's good. I mean, God knows we didn't need another scene of a British boat or sub or plane being taken hostage. But I don't know that we ever really entirely know why. Why did he risk his life to bring back a fake egg? I'm not even sure what exactly he was investigating because, again, later on, Octopussy says straight up, you have no jurisdiction over my smuggling, so we can be partners because you can't touch me. England's got a lot of issues right now. At this time, in the Margaret Thatcher years, there's a lot of things not going well. The fact that the British MI6 people are chasing after Russian eggs to see if they're real or not seems like a misappropriation of power. <laughs> I think what he was doing was trying to show that these Fabergé eggs were being forged. And Fabergé eggs, I believe, are British in origin. Well, actually, no, they call it out that these are for the royal Russian czar family. These are heirlooms of Russia. That's why they're in this art repository. And what they're doing, I mean, what we have ended up finding is that they're putting the fakes in there so that they can get the real things out and sell them to the West. And that presumably Russia is so disconnected from what would be going on at auctions in London that they'd never know that their treasures that they think are up on the shelf are really being sold off for a price for a jewel thief. You're right. Yes, I got confused. It's easy to do on Octopussy, but I do think it's curious <laughs> that this is how we get into the story. It doesn't seem likely that there would be a curiosity about this. In some of the Bond novels, they go to America and investigate American mobsters. They go to Harlem. They do things that are outside their jurisdiction because ultimately it does have some ramification on England. You know, I just don't see that this case, whether the Russian repository has real or fake treasures inside of it, is of no consequence to this country. I see your point. I didn't think about it when I was watching it, though, because if they'd sent Bond to look into artificial eggs, that would have struck me as not worthy. But they sent him to find out why one of their agents was killed. Same thing they sent him off to do in Dr. No, if we want to talk about repeated themes, and this one has many. So I was going with it, and just that's what Bond is off to do, and yet another mystery. But this one doesn't seem quite as convoluted as the last one, even though it's very similar in certain ways about who's the bad guy and who isn't. But when Bond goes to that auction house, I love him. I feel like this is Bond in his element, much like when he's playing Baccarat. You know, he, here he's playing a different game in an auction house, but it's Bond being psychological. And 
having fun with it. I completely agree. And he shows it later on when he plays backgammon in this movie. You're absolutely right. Yeah, no, I want to be clear. What I am saying is this makes no sense, just like the last movie makes no sense. But yes, I'm going with it because I'm having fun. And I do like seeing more in these situations. He's still fun to watch here. And yeah, I'm liking this setup. I'm particularly happy when we finally step away from London and we get to India. I love when we can do travelogue. I mean, it's been a while since we've done that. Yeah, it was cool to see Greece, but a lot of the movies of the last decade, it wasn't really about showing the place off so much as copying a trendy movie or a feel. And here I feel like we're back to 60s Bond and getting back to the vibe of, hey, let's just go somewhere and go on holiday. Funny, because all I could think of was... Did they have enough time to see Raiders of the Lost Ark before they made this? Because this is the first time I really started to get a strong whiff of Indiana Jones. I know Indiana Jones was created because Spielberg wanted to do Bond, and Lucas goes, well, I've got a Bond that's better than Bond. I've got Indiana. But now it feels like the tail's wagging the dog because it feels like they saw how Spielberg and Lucas did Bond and went, we need some of that flavor and put Bond in India. And a lot of these scenes feel like the Middle Eastern market scenes from Raiders. Oh, well, Raiders, you're right. But Temple of Doom hadn't come out yet. And I got a lot more of Temple Doom just by the location. I definitely got Temple of Doom in the dinner scene and Bond in the white tux that... Harrison Ford would wear in the opening scenes of Temple of Doom, and I knew Temple of Doom was a couple years off, so it's really funny how we're ripping off Bond. Bond's ripping off me. We're ripping off the new Bond that's ripping off us. I just didn't realize how derivative Temple of Doom was until seeing Octopussy this time. I saw all that Temple of Doom stuff, too. I mean, how can you not? But Stewart said it's kind of like a travel log, but they had all those jokes about sword swallowers, nail beds, and walking on coals. That doesn't seem very travelogy to me. That seems like we're making fun of. And I kind of liked in Free Your Eyes Only when they gave us a small little spattering of the travelogue, but didn't waste so much time watching dancers. We saw a small two minutes of it. Here we get a lot more of India and a lot more of the locales, but I don't think it was as wonderfully presented, Stuart, as you think because of that whole taxi sequence. He kind of seemed almost offensive in the way they were making fun of all these things they do there. I hear what you're saying, Brock. I mean, is this the most flattering portrayal of Indians? Perhaps not. It does have a Westerner's perceptions coming in here, and who are these ridiculous people that lay on beds of nails and swallow swords and all of that? But you know what? It's fun, too. I always do better in these environments when it's a place that I have a vested interest in. Japan felt that way for me, and you only live twice. And here being in India, I'm just happy to be here. I like all of the stuff. I like that car chase. I like VJ. I just, I like it all. And the floating palace is gorgeous, and I'm glad they featured that. Yeah. You said you liked VJ. You didn't mind the whole tennis jokes. And that chase sequence is a fun little sequence, but I felt they really went into the Roger Moore lots and lots of jokes. They added a lot more jokey stuff in this one, especially in that first scene. And I definitely think that you're right, Arnie. I mean, now that you're calling it out, that's them trying to do Raiders of the Lost Ark. This does have that vibe, but that's not a bad way to go. I embrace that. I mean, I don't feel like every movie needs to strike that same starker tone of For Your Eyes Only. It is Roger Moore, after all. He is getting old. Maybe we don't focus on the action as much this time. Maybe we do play up the comedy a little bit more. I mean, they could have had more comedy in For Your Eyes Only without it going off the rails, so I'm okay with it. Hell, I'm not just going to say I'm okay with it. I think it's a great idea, because Raiders really clicked with a modern audience. 
really before For Your Eyes Only, I feel that Bond it lost its way, and I felt For Your Eyes Only was an overcorrection the other way. Taking something modern that was derivative of James Bond and saying, ah, here's how we make James Bond work today, and is a great idea, and I think they used it to maximum effect because I have a lot of fun in these scenes, too. Yeah, it is fun. That's my only complaint. I don't really mind the get-off-my-bed thing, and the rupees thing was kind of fun. He has an elephant gun. It's kind of an exciting little fun scene. I just don't like the tennis part of it. They also open up with him playing the James Bond theme on a snake charmer. That also rubs me the wrong way. So I'm with you guys that they have more jokes. It's kind of fun, and they bring back gadgets and the fun things we missed in the last movie, and they still have the intensity, and they still have a lot, a lot of action in this movie. But I'm nitpicking here because I think they went a little bit too far towards Crazy Town than I think they need to in a scene that could work completely well with half the jokes. I agree completely. Some of the tennis stuff didn't go too well for me. But... I really do like Gobinda as a sidekick, but when the viewers are going back and forth with their heads like a tennis match, I groaned, yeah. There's always those jokes in a Moore movie. I'm getting immune to them, is honestly what I think it is. It's not that I don't see that they're annoying and that I'm not groaning in the moment. It's just that I've come to accept that they're going to be there and they move on and it's not as heavy as Moonraker, so it's just not a problem. Sure. We also get, right after that scene, our Hugh Gadget scene was now becoming a staple in these Bond movies. Jeremy Bullock's back. That's great to see him. I like Hugh, and you know what? Something we failed to mention last time, but some of his other regulars are fading away. You know, where was M, the last movie? I mean, Money Penny seems to be retiring now, and I just feel like I don't want to lose this cast of characters that's always been Bond's chaperones in a certain way. So Q is the last one, and the fact that he gets to do a little bit more here. I mean, he comes back in at the climax in the movie and is doing lookout for Bond. I, mean, I think he's there to make Roger Moore look young, but yeah. <laughs> All I'm saying is I want Q to stick around as long as he can. And he will. <laughs> uh, but Stuart, just I have to say this because we didn't mention it last time, uh, Bernard Lee died right as this filming began for Your Eyes Only, which is why M wasn't in the movie, and here they replaced him with Robert Brown, who was in The Spy Who Loved Me as... Could be the same character for all we know and got promoted to M, but he was one of the guys who gave more of the briefing before he meets Triple X in the thing. What's interesting about that is, until they made it explicit, I didn't realize M was a position. I thought M could be a name. And it made me wonder if 007 and James Bond was something that got passed. And maybe Roger Moore is a different James Bond 007 because Sean Connery either killed or got retired. And it's kind of like Casino Royale. <laughs> Everybody's James Bond. Did they all bury Teresa Bond? That's the one link that <laughs> they've all been involved with. I, that's where you trip up on your theory there. But Lazenby married her. Connery went beating up looking for her killer. And Moore was the one that got to drop Blofeld into the smokestack. So, Well, I should clarify that was the theory I had pre this retrospective. Yes. My own little retcon. Crack.com has a whole theory on that. It's exactly the same thing. And they point out how it may not work, but how cool would it be if that actually was true? It's a really great article. I suggest you read it. It's on Cracked. It would really help with the Daniel Craig ones, I think. Sure, sure. But all this stuff in India really does just lead us to Khan in a great backgammon scene. Again, this one took me right back to Goldfinger because Bond catches him quite obviously cheating with loaded backgammon dice. 
Yeah, you're right. Good catch. It does feel like that kind of villain again. It's a throwback to classic Ian Fleming, and frankly, they could use that at this point. Louis Jordan, he just exudes Euro trash to me. I mean, there's just <laughs> something about him that's just slimy and perverted and makes a great villain. I mean, he doesn't do much here, but I'm instantly sold. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to try and impress me. I instantly get that he's the big bad. I like his henchman, too. I think he uh, he does the whole odd job thing with crushing the dice with his bare hand. He's the perfect balance for this one because he is really tough. Every time you see him, he's tall. He's the tallest person on screen. He's really, really strong. But then he's asked to do things throughout the course. You can see him kind of like rolling his eyes when he's asked at the end of the movie to get on top of a plane and all that. He's just a little bit reluctant <laughs> to be the super bad. He's in training to be odd job, but at the end of the day, he's not willing to die for it. He's just a step back from being a kamikaze kind of sidekick, willing to die for his beloved super bad. I think that this and the last movie show an evolution of the henchman because you just couldn't play odd job or knickknack today. And I figured that we'd have to get to that point where they became a bit more realistic. And in the last one, I couldn't even really tell you who the henchman per se was. You guys pointed it out that it was the guy that was kicked over in the car, but I walked away thinking there just wasn't one because, again, I say the pendulum swung too far. Here, this guy is quite obviously the henchman, although there is another one who comes later with this great buzzsaw yo-yo. Love that guy, too. But it's a realistically tough bad guy who I'm just grooving on. It's just a nice balance. It's reminding me of Drago in Rocky Four or something like that. Just a really tough guy who's going to be hard for your hero to take out, but not so unbelievably crazy that he has killer fedoras. Yeah, you know, though, if my boss tells me to climb outside on the edge of a plane, that's when you say no. This guy says, okay, I'll stay with a nuclear bomb for you. I will sneak into people's houses. I'll do a lack of stuff for you. But getting on a plane flying high above the ground, that's where I draw the line, sir. You don't say yes to that. You say no. You say no, I'm not going out there. Oddjob would have done it. That's all I know. Oddjob did do it. He stayed in the Fort Knox to blow up with the bomb. But this guy even questioned him. His eyeballs bulged and he said, out there? Yeah, you don't go at that point. Your instinct's telling you not to go. Oddjob was blinded loyalty to Goldfinger. This guy's actually knows enough to question it. Go with your gut, man. Don't go out there. Yeah, we still respect you, Gomenda. I get it. But you're right. I'm liking all of this stuff. I, I like that. I like Louis Jordan. I like his henchmen. I don't really know what's going on. Here we are in this kind of where's the eggs, where's the eggs, where's the eggs. It doesn't really matter because it's really going to be about a nuke and a crazy Russian general. At this point in the movie, I couldn't figure out where the Russians fit in, but I was able to follow this egg stuff. It was straightforward enough. It corrected what I didn't like about the last one. I followed every bit of this egg thing. I still didn't understand the importance. I was still, again, like the last one, I'm with Bond as the mystery unravels. Yeah, I understand it in the moment. It's not confusing. I don't know how it really pays off to where they take the project. I don't think it really does, but I accept that that's the formula. But where I'm trying to figure out is where Octopussy fits into all of this. Because I remember there's a character named Octopussy, and then I get really confused because Bond goes off and sleeps with a different chick, Magda, who has an octopus rub-on tattoo... And she goes, it's my little octopusy. And I go, well, first of all, it's in the wrong part of her body for that. But second of all, 
Am I remembering completely wrong? Is that how they drop octopusy in this? Is there no octopusy? My memory failed me because I started to wonder what the hell was going on. I'm not entirely sure she works for Camel Con and works also for Octopussy, or she's working for Octopussy as undercover for Camel Con, or she's actually working with both of them simultaneously and she's on loan to Camel Con. You kind of think that she's with Camel Con for most of it, but they drop the Octopussy thing, so maybe she's like undercover. I mean, I'm not really sure, but it doesn't really matter. She's with both of them. Well, the way I would take it is this. I mean, what we're going to eventually find out is that there is this octopus cult, which is all kinds of crazy, that lives on the island of Lesbos or whatever. No men's allowed <laughs> there. There's naked women there. I miss that in PG movies. Well, good thing that this was triple X. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but well, there was the naked woman coming out of the pool. Was it a lesbian cult? Is octopusy a lesbian I don't know explicitly, obviously not, because she takes quite a shine to Roger Moore, or maybe that's proof that she is. I don't know, <laughs> you know, maybe the desperation is set in of just anything will do. It's not like Bond hasn't converted him before. My sense is that Magda has been someone that has stayed with Octopussy on the island, but has gone to work for Kamal, because Kamal sells himself as someone that aids in her jewelry heist, but who is in fact planning to exploit her, or at least her circus, for his own mysterious aims. Right. It's a little bit convoluted that Orlov would want to nuke West Germany, so he'd happen to find the circus that is already planned to go to West Germany and happens to have an underground smuggling ring. That's a bit convoluted. I followed it, but it's beyond a stretch of logic. See, I thought that worked. I thought that since he was pairing with Kamal Khan, who's doing the smuggling with Octopussy through the circus, that was his in, because Orlov found a way to do what he wanted to do with that scene you highlighted earlier about why he wants to break down the borders. This will give him the opportunity to do so. So what he's doing is he's using a method that he came across because of this association with Kamal Khan. That seemed to work for me. I wasn't that wasn't the hard part for me. But did you get the impression that Orlov was working with Khan before this and Khan goes, Oh hey, we're going to West Germany and Orlov goes, Great, I'll get you a nuke. I kind of thought, again, strained logic that Orlov picked these people because they were already going to West Germany and could get the bomb in. Yes, I can explain why too, because Orlov is the one supplying the real Russian jewels and putting in the fake ones into the Kremlin depository. So he's already working with Kamal Khan with the jewelry smuggling with the fake replacement stuff. Okay, I didn't catch that bit. Yeah, that's the connection. Now, I had to look up, because I wanted to know, you know, there's a lot of things that Bond brings up for me that I need to know. Blue-ringed octopi, they exist. There really are these things off the coast of India. They do have a poison deadly enough to kill human beings. This is true. I don't think there is any recorded instance of one latching onto someone's face like a facehugger from Alien <laughs> and killing him. But then again, those were special circumstances. They were, after all, attacking, and he was pushed into her aquarium. So what else could it do but latch on when all the water drained out? But yes, there really is this kind of octopus. Indeed, there's no documentation of an octopus cult, but these things are real. I love how you do the fact-checking for us about third nipples and tarantulas, gold paint, and now the blue ring octopus. <laughs> 
It's called a bullshit meter, and when my bullshit meter goes off, <laughs> I go to Wiki or Google and try to just see if it's out there beyond what they're offering. Now, confusing to me, I'm guessing this came from the story Octopussy. Bond has a history with her father. When we finally get these two together, about at the hour mark, 007 was at some point in his career asked to track down an AWOL general who had stolen a bunch of Chinese gold and gone off and went to go find him. And it sounds like gave him the opportunity to come home or kill himself. And he chose the latter. And his daughter, his little octopusy, that's how she got the name. It's a nickname because this man took care of octopi. She is indebted to him that this is why she doesn't have him killed or turns him over to Kamal is that she's got daddy issues. The title Octopussy comes from an actual short story and apparently the backstory she talks about her father comes from that short story. It's coming up later on in our books and not just retrospective so I'll know more then when I get there. I haven't read that yet but I'm looking forward to finding out exactly the connection between this movie and what she's talking about and the actual Ian Fleming short story. And Maud Adams as Octopussy she is a first for James Bond. She is the first woman to come back and play another role in a James Bond movie. She played supporting actress in The Man with the Golden Gun, and now she has the lead here in Octopussy. Who was she in Golden Gun? I don't remember her. She was the woman who sold out Scaramanga to Bond. She's the one who sent the bullet. She died. Oh, more slapped her. That was the thing I remember. It's really her only memorable moment in that. She's the first girl. She does get killed. Yeah, and they don't usually do that, and they have a rule about it, but because they liked her, and I also think she's age-appropriate for Roger Moore here. They were thinking about Faye Dunaway, for example, for this role, but they ended up going back to the well because they liked her so much, and they wanted to use her in a bigger role. She's good here. I like Maude Adams. I think that she shines in a way that she didn't in Man with the Golden Gun, and part of that is because she's playing this larger-than-life character, and we're expecting her to either become the villain or, or something, but it's a feature role, whereas the other one felt kind of a toss-off. Yeah, she is worthy of this, and I'm impressed with how they keep going with the stronger women. I think that that is the way to go, particularly with Moore. You want to have him play off a strong woman. I agree completely. I think that she is a great continuation of what we saw with Melina the last time, how she's not whored up. She is portrayed as an attractive, but yet strong, capable woman. Not only does it fit better with my more modern sensibilities about gender equality, I think it just makes for a more interesting dynamic between the characters. And you notice they don't kill women this time. I think this is a first for Bond. There is no woman that gets put down. Magda lives, and she's the first girl. There's that woman at the beginning that helps Bond in Cuba. Nobody gets killed. Yeah, you're right. By Bond rules, Magda should be toast. Yeah, that's she even makes it past the nuke. The second half of the movie is where I feel like it becomes a different film entirely. Forget about Fabergé eggs. They do. They change out the jewels, put a nuke in a train, and it's off to this countdown. Defuse the bomb. I did not see this coming. I should have, because it's the 80s, and it's the Russians, so of course it would have to turn into the nuke, but I just didn't see this plot coming into it. I just didn't think we were in this movie. I didn't either, but like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I think it's a great way to tie it all together. If we hadn't had that one scene with Orlov and Gogol in Russia early in the film, I'd be screaming bullshit from the top of my lungs. But because we had that, and I knew there was something going on with Russians, when it graduates to this bigger level, I am so on board with it, and 
it may help that I was worried where the story was going when Octopussy's like, I'm leaving you and going off on the circus gig. And I'm like, what? How could that possibly play in? And the fact that the circus gig was part of Orlov's plot. And I'm happy to see Orlov back. Even though I've not seen him in a ton of things, I am always happy to see Steven Burkhoff, and so I was relishing every scene of his. But we knew we had to get back to the circus because they opened with that clown bit, so that is the grabber there. But what a hell of a life these circus performers have. You start your morning in East Berlin, do a circus, walk a tightrope, throw knives at somebody on a spinning wheel, whatever you gotta do, catch an 11.45 a.m. train, pack everything up, and set it up for a 3 o'clock performance in West Germany. Would you want to walk on that tightrope? I ask. <laughs> do you really think that that big top is secure? I would not want to be up on those things, knowing that they had been so hastily reconstructed. This seems like a recipe for a disaster even without a nuke. This is why I don't ride rides at traveling carnivals, because I believe this is the schedule they keep, and I just think that roller coaster's going down. I don't give a second thought to circuses, but I do think it's kind of funny they put one in a James Bond movie. That's the kind of humor I like, as opposed to over-the-top jokes about tennis rackets. Putting a circus in a James Bond movie is over-the-top, period. There's no way around it. And if somebody came to me and said, we're going to put a circus and I, we're going to kill a clown and have fighting acrobats in the next James Bond movie and there's going to be a nuke in the cannon and while James Bond is trying to get the nuke, he's going to be in a clown outfit and we'll have the human cannonball kind of miming off of him and making funny faces. I would tell you, don't. Don't do that. But I'm going to give some real credit to the director here because on the page... That could be toxic, but John Glenn pulls it off with just the right balance, and I wouldn't have thought that was even possible. I completely agree with you. I think it works great. I think the intensity of what he's doing in a clown outfit on top of it, it's really kind of a nice juxtaposition, and I agree with you. I think the director deserves big props for it. I think the way they edited it also helps keep the story moving. It really could have been absolutely over-the-top crazy absurd, but I think it really works. No, this is pretty strong here. Absurd, yes. Don't get me wrong. This is still Roger Moore. They have not returned to Connery at all. But this is working. And I would not have thought that, yeah, circus knife throwers and Roger Moore dressed up like a clown and a nuclear bomb, all of this stuff, it should be a disaster. Don't get me wrong also, though. There are some things that don't make sense, really. Bond, when he kills the last knife guy, he says, this is for my brother, and then he all of a sudden throws a knife in him and says, that's for 009. How does Bond know this guy killed 009? He never finds that out for certain. He just thinks, maybe he puts it together with the knives, but we don't really know how he knows this guy killed his agent. He watched the movie. He read the script. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> it says on page three, you did this. <laughs> Hey, that's the hook, I would think. More than finding out who's got a fake or real Fabergé egg, Bond would have some investment on what happened to one of his fellow double agents. There had to be justice for that. You had to have him sell that moment. Do I wish that they had had him have that light bulb coming on scene? Sure, but I wanted to see it. This is for my brother. This is for 009. I was cheering. I loved it. You know, talk about things that also don't work, like the gorilla outfit thing completely doesn't work. Like, he looks at his watch, and then he gets in and out of a gorilla suit with no one noticing. That's unbelievable. But then right afterwards, they have a great scene on top of the train, so you quickly forget about 
about it. You know, they have the Tarzan yell in the middle of that most dangerous game bit. That is quickly forgotten because that whole sequence is just so much fun to watch of him being hunted. Yeah, and because they have good jokes to follow up the real bad jokes. I mean, when he jumps onto a tourist boat and says he was with the economy tour, that redeemed the Tarzan yell. Every time, yeah, he hitchhikes and ends up with a car full of people eating schnitzel and drunk driving. Yeah, that's too much. But then something will happen and I'll smile. Like when Kamal and Gabinda try to get away and the car doesn't start at first and they kind of look at each other like, oh crap, <laughs> we got to be 20 miles away in half an hour or we're going to be toast. There there are good bits to counterbalance the bad. There are always bad jokes in James Bond, in any James Bond movie, just about anyone I can think of. But the fact of the matter is you have to be able to come back with one that does make you smile. And Octopussy does that. They do survive the stink and come back with a smile. Yep. And there's also emotional moments. I felt bad when VJ is killed and we see Bond and Q talking about how he died and it wasn't quick. Yeah, he said he's alive when I got here. Yeah. There are a couple of lines like that just float that kind of haunt you, and they have haunted me for years, and that's one of them. But unfortunately, I gotta say, the movie does take a little bit of a wrong turn after the nuke when Octopussy is so pissed off that... (laughs) Khan was going to nuke them that she sends her circus to kill him. And all of a sudden, I realize we've complained in the past about when the troops are sent in to aid Bond, but give me the military over Barnum and Bailey any day. Yeah, this is a bad ending. Once the nuke is deactivated, that should be over. I mean, they have to bring Kamal to justice. But the fact that he's home packing at the Monsoon Palace and that we have all these women in scars and harem gear coming in in a fight scene, the movie has gone back to Moonraker wrongness. Not that far, no, but it feels to me like they knew more wasn't going to be up for a lot of physicality, so they brought in a whole bunch of young women to do the physicality, but it just makes him look so much older riding in on a hot air balloon. Yeah. Slowly. Slowly. Well, yes, that goes without saying. It's a hot air balloon. I've never yeah. seen it go quick. Hey, that henchman didn't hear it coming when they landed <laughs> on him. So dumb. But then again, though, isn't this the scene where he awesomely slides down the banister with a machine gun? That is true, and I do like that where he's worried about his balls. Yeah, they couldn't resist. Love it. This is like such an awesome scene. And so, yes, there's certainly an acknowledgement that Moore's not going to do the heavy lifting. I don't really mind this scene as much as you guys do. I do agree it's where I don't want it to go. But again, as we talked about redeeming with that thing down the banister and where it finally ends, the final fight, I enjoyed. So this little one here, I can just take it or leave it. Right. It's all about getting Bond on top of a plane, really, at the end of the day. And that is fun. It's almost, oddly enough, like a repeat of the Twilight Zone movie with uh, John Lithgow, that scene where the gremlin's on the wing and he's undoing the propellers, only Bond's playing the gremlin. Yeah, the stunt work on that plane sequence is absolutely phenomenal. They're actually outside that plane. It's amazing. Obviously, they're insert shots, clearly. But I don't think Moore is selling him being on top of a plane as much as I thought he sold himself being on the side of a cliff. But I do think the scene plays extremely well. I mean, extremely well. It's awesome. Actually, I got to disagree. I think that maybe it's the wind machine, but I believed Bond on top of a plane more than I believed him on the side of a mountain, except when the plane goes upside down. That one didn't quite go for me, but the rest of the time, I really was impressed with the stunt work here and that they actually did have a guy on a plane for some of these scenes, and I thought the insert shots did pretty well. Yeah. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Octopussy? Stuart, 
Much better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I kind of put this one on the same level as Dr. No, which is weird because I didn't recommend Dr. No, and I'm going to recommend Octopussy. Yes, I just said that. I recommend Octopussy. But they were both these kind of shambling stories where I felt like, eh, we're just kind of going along with it because it's fun. But ultimately, the tipping point for me is Octopussy. It's Mod Adams. Having this strong female character makes it even more fun when the plot kind of lags. And for me, all of that Fabergé egg nonsense, I was barely invested there. I mean, it's Roger Moore nonsense. But I feel like it's more fun than half of what we've had, and particularly when they've tried to have fun, that labored fun of Moonraker, or dare I say it, Spy Who Loved Me. I hear from our fans that's some of their favorite ones, but to me, that's one that was a favorite one as a child, that when I went back to as an adult, I didn't think played at all. Here, I love this as a child. I think it still plays now. And I gotta say, it did bring up a painful memory for me. I don't know if you guys ever subscribe to Electronic Games Magazine, but this was supposed to be the very first James Bond video game. Octopussy was coming to the Atari 2600. They had photos. It was going to be you climbing up and down on this train while people with swords attacked you. I could not wait to buy it for my Atari, and it never came out. They ended up releasing something called James Bond, and it was a bastardization of this. I, I By that time, I had moved on to Coleco, but this one holds up, and I didn't think it would go this way. I thought Octopussy was one of the known stinker quantities. I feel like when people rank Bond movies, this one always is put towards the bottom here. I think it's just the name. Honestly, I think people have never gotten over that name, and because it's called this, they have labeled it as one of the dogs, but it deserves better reputation than it has. I'm definitely going to say yes to Octopussy. You always should. Arnie. I always do. (laughs) Well, last time, Stuart, when we got to this point, I said it's funny how we can seem to agree the whole podcast, and then I get here, and who are you? And this time, I... Agree with you, fortunately. This is the first in a long string of bonds, and it's been longer for me than you, listeners. I am happily giving this one a recommend. I'm not sure if this is an all-time high for Bond. I don't know if Bond will ever beat From Russia With Love for me at this point. But we are back in a very comfortable territory here. You guys said last time, Connery, we're back in that Goldfinger kind of territory. But it's being done with a more modern aesthetic, more modern sensibility. It's not quite as over-the-top and foolish, but there is some foolish stuff. I think the difference between this one and the last one for me is the last one became so convoluted and so serious that it really turned me off in the second hour. But this one keeps it playful without ever becoming buffoonish. And it's a very fine line, and I've already said this podcast, that I really do credit John Glenn with this, because as you said, Stuart, it's the same writers we've had before, but this one walks the tightrope both literally and figuratively and delivers a fun, exciting Bond experience. Add to that some good performances from Roger Moore, Maude Adams, and Stephen Burkoff. Plus, I'm happy to see Gogol take a larger role. We saw in the last one that he kind of saw this all as a game to see that internal strife, the stereotypical 80s Russian general against Gogol, who we've had around for so long as to become a comforting presence, was something I really liked about this movie. So yeah, I didn't know fans hate it, but I like Octopussy. 
this is a movie that gets dogged a lot, and I, like many other people, have been championing this one for a long time. This is not the first time I've said that on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and this will not be the last, and we'll get to those later, but I'm a big fan of this movie. I like this movie a lot. I, again, admit that I have a lot of nostalgia for this movie, but when I reconnect with it in my 20s, I really realized what this is. This is a lot of fun to watch. It has a lot of action. The craziness is really juxtaposed well with the intense way it's presented. There are stakes. Obviously, the James Bond movie, he's going to win, but there's still some intensity here at the end that works completely for me. I love the action in this movie. I love the stunts in this movie. I think it really works well. I think the performances are strong, and I don't understand why this is at the bottom of so many lists. This one is a fun James Bond movie. It's my second favorite Roger Moore James Bond movie, and I think you should watch it if you haven't seen it in a while, and I hope you enjoy it. Recommend. All right. Well, it's nice to all really be behind one, and I think to varying degrees. I don't think I liked it as much as you, Brock, and I don't think it's as good as even Live and Let Die, but it works. There's no denying it. If you like kooky adventure from the 80s, this is as good as Temple of Doom in my book. So if you enjoy this podcast, please go to the forums. You can find a link at nowplayingpodcast.com. Let us know what you think or go on Facebook and join the discussion there. We're also on Twitter. We want to hear what you have to say, so please let us know. And if you like our show, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review so other people like yourself can find us and hear what we're talking about here with James Bond. And don't forget, we are past the halfway point of our donation drive. We are finishing up the official Romero films. We've got two left. Diary of the Dead is this Friday, and then Survival of the Dead next Friday. Then we move on to the official remakes of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. Find out all the details at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And remember, your donation, even if you're not into the Living Dead, helps keep Now Playing doing all the shows we're doing. We're going back to Bond twice a week once we get into November in order to get to Skyfall near its release. Near its release in America. I mean, hell, the British have it weeks before then, but they probably have it now, actually. But do keep in mind, it does help keep us going, and we have a lot of stuff planned for this year and next. So find out all the details about our donation drive at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing will return with Never Say Never Again. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. 
Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Today we're talking about Octopussy. I really think it's terrible that Nadia Suleiman has gone to doing porn in order to support her family. I don't know what that means. How long have you been waiting to say that? Yeah, he was just like jumping in there. Like, who? Nadia what? That was planned. That was not even off the cuff. That was like right there on his cuff in bold letters. (laughs) But if it helps, I only thought about it while you were urinating before we started. Okay. It was when you said we were returning in Octopussy that I'm like, I need to make a Nadia Suleiman joke. Who is this person? Octomom! (laughs) Oh, okay. I only know her as Octo Mom. Okay. Well, if I called her Octo Mom, it would it would ruin the. Yeah, no, no. You're right. From a joke <laughs> telling standpoint, yes, you cannot say Octo Mom if you're making an Octo Pussy joke. Yeah, you have to know who that is, and I just don't follow. And it. the fact that she's done porn—not good porn, but porn. Really? It would, it would ruin that incredible joke with that amazing timing. We would. We, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing at the whole rigmarole of it, not even the actual joke. I think it was... All right, let's get to the goddamn movie. Move on. Let's just move on. Today we're talking about Octopussy. Okay. Today we're talking about Octopussy. Starring Roger Moore, Maud Adams, Louis Jordan, Desmond Llewellyn. He's not listed here. Give me a minute. Sorry. Sorry, he's not listed in there where he's supposed to be. Where the f*** is the Indian guy? Oh, who the actor is? I have all these things written down. You can always ask me. It was, oh, you know, I didn't write him down. <laughs> no, but typically... But I, I always did, have this. You could always... What I, the f- I, I, I don't think you guys realize that, but I on my notes, I transcribe, like, the whole cast list. Like, I have it right here. Like in a, uh, Stuart, I'm going to tell you something. IMDB <laughs> saves you a lot of time on that. Desmond Llewellyn, Kabir BD. I hate it when I get when I contract Kabir BD, but penicillin clears it right up. God, it's going to be all night. <laughs> Keep them coming, Arnie. Keep them coming. You're on a roll. But I don't want anything <laughs> to do with this Penelope Smallbone. This is crap. I want Money Penny in that chair until she can't do it anymore. Yeah, we know Smallbone isn't going to work for Bond. Right and nice. Uh, yeah, I like that joke. That was a good one. Uh, I I'm I glad think, I'm I'm glad you approve. I live that, for that bar. That one was good. I like that. Uh, 
this is the Bond film I have seen the most. This one was on cable when I had cable uh, on all the time, whenever I could get it on. This is when I first started watching James Bonds in earnest <laughs> around this time. <laughs> okay, it wasn't just me. I'm biting my lip. I can do it. What happened? What'd I say? You want to get it on with Octopussy. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's how it came out? It's great because I didn't know. And that's great. Yeah. I didn't think I said anything wrong. Let me let me say that I again. I should hit the mute um, button. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. It's, if you if it played that way to you, it's going to play that way to the listener. And that's and, why I'm leaving it in. Oh, great. Okay. I think Maude Adams is hot. Uh, anyway, so uh, I would... Kamal Khan. Khan! I never thought now playing would reference Kegel exercises, but here we go. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> I, I just oh, thought man. that that was a really underground thing. I'm like, somebody else knows Kegels. Huh. Good for your urinary tract health. I gotta say... I do have to say, I didn't know this was the movie, but I do often reference James Bond throwing money and going, rupees, in everyday life, and so it was good to see this one. Really? You're <laughs> referencing octopus? Anytime I talk about trying to get away from somebody, I often talk about rupees and having all the people rush in the middle. Yes. Are you pursued often? Is this a problem? <laughs> You're a wanted man. All right. I didn't know this. I'm learning so much. Or I, I talk about it like if I'm in a line at Comic-Con and I just want the line to disperse, rupees, and everybody would go running after the money and I could move to the front of the line. Ah, okay. You, you do that same thing from Star Trek V, don't you, when you get the Lost or something? <laughs> we're lost, but we're making good time. Hey, if it sticks with you, it sticks with you. Everyone has their thing. Minus rupees, and it's good to finally see the movie from which it came because I j honestly thought it was a Connery one. <laughs> Indeed. General says, you and your families are safe. That's haunted me for years because, like, oh, my God, families could have gotten killed. Nine-year-old Brock here is freaking out over watching this on cable, like, oh, my God. Kind of like at the end of Time Bandit. Don't yeah. touch it, Mom and Dad. It's evil. That thing haunts me for freaking life. <laughs> it's okay. Eight-year-old Arnie thought this was porn. <laughs> yeah. I'm worried about my family. You're worried about porn. All right. There we go. <laughs> and when the end times come, that will still be the case. <laughs> I will try to avoid such puns as eating it up and things in this final summation. Too late. Are you avoiding <laughs> it when you actually say it? <laughs> Are you having it too? Yeah. Yes, I'm having my octopusy and eating it too. All right. All right. So there we go. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for being uh, taking the high an road. An all-time high road. <laughs> all yeah. There we go. We got to it. Now playing, we'll return with A View Wait. to a Kill. Let's never say never what? again. No, never say never. Plus, you said that almost like I'd assembled your <laughs> words from different sentences. Now playing, <laughs> we'll return with. <laughs> I First of all, I was have you in my head the last time because yeah. of the in and out thing. And, and uh, I just blatantly forgot. I just don't think about <laughs> Never Say Never Again. This doesn't bode well. I want to see this movie again. I don't remember it at all. And then that woman in the Jeep in 
Cuba. I mean, you saw just about everything but nipple on her. I was more focused on the crocodile. What can I say? As a kid, I thought it was cool that he was in a crocodile submarine. I didn't notice at the time the boobies. I did like the crocodile, yes. Yeah, it's fun. 